Hello, you're listening to On Israeli Now Monitor. I'm Ben Kaspi from Tel Aviv. Today's podcast picks up where we left off last week with world-renowned counterterrorism expert Professor Boaz Ganov. Those who tuned in, uh, in may remember that we asked Professor Ganov how security agencies could deal with individual terrorists unaffiliated with any organization or a hierarchy who may uh, themselves only decide that uh, at the very last minute to go through with the attack that they've uh, fantasized about. They share their secret with only a handful of people and don't post on social media in order to avoid giving any advance warning. They simply pick up a gun, knife, rifle, screwdriver, and go. That's what uh, happened three days after the podcast with Ganor went online. A 29-year-old Palestinian named Raid Hazem from the Jenin area of the West Bank picked up a gun, crossed illegally into Israel, and took a bus to Tel Aviv. He obviously knew just where to go to cause maximal damage. He walked to one of the main nightlife venues of the city's dismal street, stood outside a packed pub, took aim and fired, killing three and wounding more than 10. He then escaped into the night. Israel's well-oiled counterterrorism response, the result of thousands of mass terrorist attacks over the years, swung into action. Police, Shin Bet agents, special forces, army commandos, all spread out to find him, activating every intelligence tool and source they had. But Hazem was in the wing. Tel Aviv residents were told to go home, lock the doors, and keep away from balconies or windows. Just before sunrise on Friday, April 8th, seven and a half hours after he escaped, Hazem was located hiding near a mosque in Tel Aviv, neighborhood of Jaffa. He opened fire at the agents of the Shin Bet and was shot dead. Today's podcast will focus on terrorism in the cyber area and cyber counterterrorism warfare. Our guest is one of the world's leading experts on the issue, a former officer in the IDF's elite Sayeret Matkal Commando Unit, who also commanded the legendary 8200 unit that collects signal intelligence, signal intelligence, and is considered the world's best cyber academy. Reserve Brigadier General Nadav Tzafrir went on to establish and lead Team 8, Israel's leading cybersecurity think tank and venture creation company, which built disruptive cybersecurity capabilities. He also advised Fortune 500 companies, global executives, and security forums around the world. We'll hear from him right after this short break. I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it. This past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms.
And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis. Now I am uh, honored and privileged to uh, introduce uh, our guest today. Uh, he is uh, the former commander of the mythological Israeli uh, intelligence unit uh, 8200 and the uh, founder uh, and leading, leading founder and uh, managing partner in uh, Team 8, an Israeli, uh, American-Israeli cyber company, Brigadier General Reserve Nadav Tzafrir, Shalom, and thank you for joining us here in On Israel in Al Monitor. Shalom, Nadav, Toda. Shalom, hi Ben, thanks for having me. Okay, so let's first uh, uh, speak a little about up-to-date business here in Israel, and I'm to, uh, we're talking terror, and it's uh, it's uh, happening here almost on a daily basis now and then go to more macro questions. Uh, and uh, Israel has been hit by four terrorist attacks in less than three weeks. They occurred without any advance warning and uh, took Israel's security agencies by complete surprise. All four were carried out by young men unaffiliated with an organization who did not provide any clues to their intentions. Can you tell us if there is any way that defensive or offensive cyber tools can be used to monitor, detect, and prevent this type of terrorism. In other words, I'm asking you, if you were now in, in office as the commander of A200, what you do, would you do in such a situation? Thanks, Ben. Um, you know, obviously this is uh, um, something which is, uh, uh, has taken toll of lives and, uh, uh, and terror is terror is terror. Um, I do believe from uh, past knowledge and from uh, friends that are still in service that um, although every lost life is a big tragedy and terror is terror, there are uh, um, numerous uh, potential attacks that have been thwarted uh, uh, based on very, very sophisticated intelligence that Unit 8200 uh, and other uh, um, members of our uh, defense establishment have collected and been able to uh, thwart attacks. Having said that, it is, it is true, as you said, that unaffiliated uh, uh, young men that, uh, you know, when they go to sleep at night, don't know that they will become a terrorist tomorrow morning, uh, create a challenge which is almost unprecedented. However, uh, as the world became hyper-connected, and as our digital footprint of all of us um, is constantly rising, uh, almost exponentially, the answer to these kinds of uh, attacks are probably based on very sophisticated and relevant and very big data. You know, we hear the war, we hear the term big data all the time. Here we're talking really big data, access to really big data. Uh, sophisticated and relevant. And on top of that, state-of-the-art machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence. 
Um, the bigger the data, the more sophisticated it is, the cleaner it is, uh, and the more we can deploy machine learning and AI to the edge, uh, we will be able to uh, detect, we will be able to mitigate, and in many ways, not just uh, thwart terrorist attacks, but also, uh, and this may sound ironic, make our neighbors' lives better as well. Okay. Um... Let's hope it will happen in the near future. Uh, you deal now after service uh, in team eight in cyber defense, in developing uh, systems that can uh, prevent cyber attacks from uh, paralyzing vital services and striking the infrastructure of ma major government and economic institutions. Would it be correct to say that offensive cyber will always have the advantage over this defensive cyber? How do you see the balance of uh, mutual deterrence between these two sides? You know, th th there, it's, it's true that there is an asymmetry between cyber offense and cyber defense. You know, uh, um, to the CISOs that work with us, the chief cyber uh, uh, security, uh, information security officers in enterprise that we work with, we say the almost cliche by now that on offense, you only need to be right once. And on defense, you need to be right all the time. Um, that create an, creates an asymmetry. And this asymmetry is also true about other areas. You know, when we're, you're working on the defense side, you have regulations and legal aspects, uh, et cetera. When you're working on offense, you're much less constrained. Um, but I think in order to understand the big picture, you must think about the fact that it's not that offense is getting better than defense. It's that this, the, the attack surface, the opportunities, the millions and billions of connections between people and devices, which is skyrocketing, is just creating such an immense footprint um, that is making the attackers' lives easier and making defense much harder. So all in all, we do have a, a serious gap that we need to close, but in order to close this gap, it's not enough to just make better uh, cyber defense technique, tools, technologies, et cetera. But there's also philosophically, we need to change our state of mind when we're thinking about defense. For example, you cannot protect everything. Uh, you have to prioritize. Another example is you have to live with the fact that there will be breaches. Um, so this is becoming part of doing business. Um, another example is you need to change the fact that who owns cybersecurity in organizations. You know, it used to be the CISOs that own it. We now preach to the enterprises that we work with. It has to be the leadership. It has to be the business leadership and it has to be the CEO because connectivity and digital transformation has become such a major uh, issue in, in business and cyber comes along with it, whether you like it or not. I recently, last question before we go to, uh, to the more macro uh, issues. I recently interviewed finance minister, Israeli finance minister, Avigdor Lieberman. And he talked about uh, the darknet as a strategic threat to world order and the global economy. He, he talked about a jungle of dangerous hacker gangs with almost state-like capabilities with unlimited uh, disruptive potential, somewhat like the sea pirates of previous centuries, but without the physical or geographical boundaries that limited uh, the pirates' actions. Would you agree with this uh, description? 
Yes, I concur. Um, when you uh, when you reach out into the depth of the uh, dark web, um, what you find is quite scary. Uh, it has no boundaries. Um, it has no legal framework. Uh, and in order to fight back, uh, there are a few things that we need to do on a macro government level. Number one is call cybercrime what it is whether it's cyber crime, whether it's uh, state supported, whether it's terror, cyber terrorism, we are gonna see all of those. And the first thing that we must do is call it what it is. It's, it's crime, it's terrorism, uh, it's attacks, uh, it's, uh, it's illegal. So I'll give you an example. You know, If you're uh, running a, a financial institution, for example, right? Um, if somebody storms that financial institution um, either, uh, you know, just for, for monetary gain, um, you know, the police will come, um, the, the people that uh, have done it have a good chance of getting caught, they'll probably be prosecuted, go to jail, etc. Um, and the financial institution, for example, if it's a bank will be considered a victim. In cyber, it's almost the other way around, we, we look at the victim, and we blame them for being a victim. Um, and so the first thing we need to do is call it what it is. We need to understand that just like everything, digital transformation is changing everything. It's also changing crime. And in the future, it will also change terrorism. Now, here's a big problem. It's got no boundaries and it's incredibly difficult uh, um, to find who it was and to attribute an attack to somebody because it's very easy to hide uh, in cyber. And so this calls not only for calling it what it is, but the second thing is it calls for international collaboration, which I don't have to tell you is becoming harder and harder. But as long as we don't understand these two factors, um, it'll be very hard to fight back. I'd say again, number one, call it what it is, terrorism, uh, crime, et cetera. Number two, international collaboration. And number three, change our mindsets with regards to government and private collaboration, because it's almost impossible to differentiate today between what's state, government, private, etc. Okay, now I want uh, to ask you about more uh, geopolitical, etc. issues, and let's talk about digital uh, connectivity. It has changed the world forever in many ways. It has also made it extremely, extremely vulnerable to cyber breaches. Have we crossed a vulnerability chasm? I think we have. I think we have been. I think uh, we're at a point of no return. Um, and to be honest, I think it's a good thing. Um, if you look uh, at the net effect of digital transformation, it has made our lives better. And I think it will continue to make our lives better. Yes, it does come with a price. The price is what you just uh, uh, talked about. Uh, it's also privacy. Um, so, you know, privacy is at stake. Um, criminals are taking advantage of this. I think in the future, terrorists will take advantage of this. But all in all, if you think about it, let's take COVID-19 as an example, right? So COVID-19 mm -hmm. hit about two and a half years ago. Uh, it's probably, not probably, it is the worst pandemic that the world has uh, uh, had to deal with since uh, 1918. Um, now, try to think about COVID-19 without the digital infrastructure that we've put together in the last 20 years. 
we would have been in a much worse situation, probably more similar to what happened in, in 1918. However, what we saw in the last couple of years is an incredible uh, resilience, not uh, 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 vulnerability of our digital infrastructure. I mean, if you would have told me two years ago that most of the things that we do face-to-face uh, -face will turn offline or online, sorry, uh, um, to and, and depend on remote work based on a digital infrastructure, and that this digital infrastructure will not collapse, I would have told you you're, you're an optimist. But this is what happened in reality. Um, and uh, that's not the only thing. I also, I, I think that as digital transformation uh, becomes a reality, and as we see some of the inventions that are just around the corner, our lives will get better. Uh, and if you look at the statistics they have, more people have more access, more people have more opportunities uh, as, they, as more people get connected. Um, and so, I th so all in all, I'm an optimist. Um, we're not going back. I think it will get better. I think us in the industry will have to support this um, by changing the way technology works in organizations uh, and understanding that cyber is no longer a standalone issue that comes after the matter. Cyber has to become a part of the business strategy. Cyber has to be embedded into coding, what we call shift left today. Cyber has to be taken into, con into consideration uh, on the legal framework, on, on the architecture of the uh, IT, et cetera. And as, long as, it, it, and as soon as it becomes embedded both uh, in the infrastructure, in the strategy, in the business plans, et cetera, uh, I think we can create a better balance uh, between where we are today, the opportunities on the one hand and the vulnerabilities that we're creating on the other hand. I want to ask a small, but I think it's a big follow-up question about this. As a father, I look at my two younger daughters, 11 and a half and almost 14, connected 24-7 to their cellular. They are in TikTok and all the other social networks. You use many times the, the expression, I think, a hyper-connected world. What recommendation can you give me? I think you are a father as well. What to do with these children that live their lives in the internet, in the, the cellular, the smartphone, uh, playing with and talking with each other only through this medium? Is it good to, to, to uh, try to stop it or limit it in anyhow? Or are we uh, damaging their ability to be the next commander of A200 or, a, or a, a, a successful cyber innovator or something? You know, it's, it's probably uh, uh, top of mind and the most important thing that we, we are all concerned about, right? The, the, our, our children, the next generation. And yes, I have a 16-year-old uh, girl, a 14-year-old son, and I also have a four-year-old. And, 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 you know, it's funny because it's, I see the differences between the 16-year-old and the yeah. four-year-old. It's, like it's like three generations, not one. Uh, between them, because we've gone such, through such a, uh, an incredible pace uh, uh, of uh, digitization and changes in the world. Here is sort of my personal take um, as, uh, as an ex-commander of some of the brightest kids that uh, uh, joined the military in Israel, and as a father. Look, I think the war is lost, right? You cannot disconnect them. I don't think you want to disconnect them. But just like everything else, I do think that there need, need to be guardrails. Uh, and at every age, we need to have different guardrails. 
I, I'll tell you uh, personally, you know, I'm very uh, overt about this with my kids. Uh, I tell them, look, I mean, you have access. I cannot stop that. I don't want to stop that. Um, but I, I will every once in a while check uh, um, with my own cyber capabilities to make sure that you're not in the dark net, as we just spoke about, to make sure that no one uh, in the net is taking advantage of you. Uh, because uh, there are bad people are out there. And just like uh, uh, somebody can do something in the physical world, they can do something in the virtual world. Again, I think if we put the right boundaries, the right guardrails, um, if we are open about the fact that we need, that we have to, just like we need it in the physical world, we're not doing this because we don't trust you. We're doing this because we don't trust others that you're going to be interacting with. We will be, I will be looking uh, every once in a while, and I want you to know that. Um, and just like we need to support our kids as they grow in this world and other things, we need to support them here. Having said that, I will say one more thing. I do think there's, there's a discrepancy between digital transformation and human evolution. I can tell you this now as a business person. I am, uh, um, I'm, you know, uh, uh, very uh, uh, confident um, that we need to come back to physical interactions. I think organizations that, for example, decided to go remote all the time will have a big problem. I think for in business, for example, remote work uh, works very well when you're doing the predominantly the same things with mostly the same people. But when you want to do new things with new people, remote and digital does not work. And I think for our kids, if you think about that analogy, they're constantly doing new things. And you constantly want to do it with, for them to do it with new people. So I, I, you know, I urge my own kids uh, and everybody else to try to find some healthy balance. Uh, having said that, you know, our, our education systems, and you know, this is obviously, a, 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 you know, we could probably spend the next few hours, which we don't have, talking about our education systems. We'll need to adapt mm -hmm. and adjust as well, which they haven't yet. Um, but last thing I'll say about this, I do not think that these kids, if we put those guardrails, if we create some kind of balance, I think that they will actually be smarter, more adaptive, and more agile than we were. I completely agree. And it was fascinating. Uh, my next question is, what's next? What are the big innovations or inventions and what's their impact? I, I, I guess you're one of the guys that is working on it. So what can you share with us? Yeah, you know, I, I tell uh, uh, the CEOs of our companies, I tell my customers, uh, I tell my friends, uh, embrace. Embrace for the next decade. Uh, because if you think the last couple of decades have been uh, decades of tremendous change, uh, embrace for what's coming next. I think you know, if you look at a recent history and, and you know, digital is not very old. I mean, we can maybe start talking about digital uh, um, somewhere around World War II, uh, uh, you know, with inventions in Bletchley Park that changed the world forever. Mm -hmm. um, so we're talking about a very recent history. I think one of the biggest, you know, uh, uh, um, sort of amazing transition years is 2007. If you look at 2007, a few things happened at the same time. Uh, uh, I think Thomas Friedman has written about this uh, extensively. You know, the, the smartphone, uh, cloud, uh, Android, uh, uh, ubiquitous social networks, all this happens all of a sudden in 2007 and changes the world forever. 
Um, and I think we're at the sort of at the cusp of another one of those uh, major uh, uh, changes uh, with the next with the next breakthroughs, right? Number one, uh, which is already becoming a reality, is machine learning. Machine learning and AI. Machine learning and AI has been uh, we've we've been promising the the revolution around machine learning and AI for the last forty years. I think it's actually happening as we speak. Um, and then the other uh, uh, huge uh, um, thing that's sort of lurking, if you like, uh, around the corner, which will change our lives forever, is quantum computing. Um, quantum computing, no, you know, nobody knows when will quantum computing become a reality, but when it does, our lives will never look the same because it's going to do the one thing that uh, uh, hasn't been done so far, which is sort of shorten time uh, for everything. So on the one, so from the from the vulnerability side, things that we have uh, uh, learned to live and take as you know as 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 a as a fact, uh, for example, encryption uh, and and you know encryptions like RSA um, will become obsolete uh, when quantum computing becomes uh, available to uh, uh, to countries and organizations, uh, just because they will shrink time uh, exponentially, you know, dramatically. Um, but on the other hand. We will also be able to uh, uh, um, solve probably some of the biggest mysteries of life uh, much faster than uh, uh, ever before, and all the way from uh, curing cancer and understanding if there's life's uh, you know out of our uh, out of our planet. So all these things are just around the corner, uh, and I think when you when you look at the fact that the digital infrastructure has matured, uh, computation uh, is about to change forever the uh, algorithms that come with that around machine learning and AI are becoming more and more uh, uh, seasoned um, and available. Um, this will create uh, uh, you know, changes that we probably uh, can't even imagine in every aspect of our lives, hopefully most of them for the better. But if you look at transportation, if you look at uh, digital health, if you look at climate, uh, um, digital, with uh, um, exceptional compute power uh, and endless storage capabilities uh, will change everything that we have been accustomed to. And I think this next decade is when we're going to see these big changes coming. It's really uh, so fascinating. I, I wish we had uh, some maybe four or three or five hours more to speak about it. But I have to ask now my uh, final question, and uh, it's obvious. Russia versus Ukraine. Have we overestimated the role of cyber in the 21st century warfare? You know, this is something that I'm thinking about in the last few weeks and uh, uh, with the research team here at Team 8, uh, alongside, uh, you know, friends and researchers like uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, who's a partner here, uh, uh, and Itai Brun, uh, who was my colleague when I was uh, uh, head of 8200, he headed the research team. You know, we've and 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 you know our own CTOs, etc. We've been thinking about this and talking to others. Here's uh, uh, my very short answer. I think it's circumstantial. Have we overestimated the role of cyber in 21st century warfare? I think the answer is no. I think we haven't seen uh, um, anything yet. I think we will uh, in the near future. I think uh, uh, governments uh, and quasi nation state capable, uh, 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 you know operators and big tech companies do have the capability to change uh, uh, you know, 
major trajectories uh, in how we live, how we vote, where we live, what we choose as we speak. Uh, and I can tell you for sure that uh, nation states have the capability to take down critical infrastructure in other nation states as we speak. So the first answer is, I don't think we've underestimated the macro. I think specifically in this conflict, um, two things have, uh, uh, have led to the fact that we haven't seen anything dramatic. Number one is, I think Russia underestimated the resistance in Ukraine and hence uh, didn't need uh, to use uh, um, you know, the heavy uh, cyber arsenal. Because if the goal was to take over Ukraine and you know, establish a new government in Kiev uh, in a few days or a couple of weeks, then you don't wanna take down the infrastructure because this is the same infrastructure that you're gonna be using a couple of weeks later, number one. Number two, because I think they didn't think they would need it, they didn't prepare for it. And there is one thing that people don't realize, major cyber offense operations take a long time and a huge effort and cannot be carried out from one day to the next. Uh, superficial ones, DDoS and others can, but major operations like the ones we've seen Russia uh, allegedly at least doing in the Ukraine in 2017, for example, taking down electric utilities, these take a long time. And I don't think they had the time for preparing this uh, specifically. Now, the other thing is that you need to differentiate between Ukraine and the West. I do think that uh, um, the West uh, is in very high alert, the West being NATO, the United States, of course, in all aspects, military, but also uh, um, government and also symbols, right? So I won't be surprised if uh, as a retaliation to the sanctions, we will see uh, Western capitalist uh, uh, brand names getting attacked. Having said that, I think neither the Russians nor NATO in the US are looking to escalate. And I believe that even if the Russians do have the ability, and I believe they do, they will think twice before taking out uh, a major, uh, even if it's a uh, commercial entity in the West, because that may lead uh, to the West or NATO seeing that as an Article 5 uh, infringement and uh, this will escalate. I don't think that the Russians or NATO and the Americans are looking to escalate this. So bottom line is, I think, no, we haven't, un we haven't overestimated the role of cyber. I think we haven't seen anything yet, generally speaking. Specifically, I think the Russians do have the ability, but not the will, at least not for now, uh, at least not as, as it doesn't escalate more. I think if the sanctions uh, uh, that are, you know, the, the sanctions right now are seen as something extremely fierce, but there's much more to go with these sanctions, right? So I think if the sanctions go deeper, um, the will will go higher. Uh, and also one thing that you need to take into consideration is that the different clocks for kinetic uh, and for uh, uh, um, sanctions, economic sanctions. I think the real pain uh, will start hitting in the next few months. And I think if the sanctions persist, then we will probably see uh, cyber attacks uh, uh, on the rise uh, in, in three different aspects. Number one, uh, we will see a, a resurge of ransomware uh, because you know, just like the Koreans in the past, now we will see uh, organizations, peoples, et cetera, that will need to uh, uh, put food on the table and ransomware um, is probably a good uh, uh, place to do it uh, uh, post-Ukraine uh, situation. So that's number one. Number two, retaliation. And number three, pressure on uh, the West 
to relax sanctions if they continue for the next foreseeable future. I have to grab one more. It's a philosophic question. Uh, you, you spoke about AI. Isn't it uh, frightening? Can we find ourselves uh, somewhere in the future in a, in a Donna, uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger film, a war against the machines? For uh, maybe the maybe the AI can replace the human brain, or uh, I'm uh, a simple guy that is uh, exaggerating. You know, there there are different uh, sort of uh, uh, philosophies around this. Um, I'm I'm on the field that says that at least for the foreseeable future, I believe it's a man machine team. Uh, by the way, talking about eighty two hundred, the current head of eighty two hundred, which is a uh, uh, brilliant, uh, wrote a book about this called the man machine team. Um, and uh, you know, he's he talked and 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 I I think he has sort of the the, the, the pragmatic approach to this. We need to understand uh, where machines can make our lives better. We need to be careful as we delegate critical decision makings to machines. We need to be careful when we feed data to these machines because the explainability becomes very, very hard. And so we need to have these you know, very crystal clear guardrails, by the way, this is where I believe that government still has a really important uh, place in this game to create the regulatory systems, which by the way, need to be not prescriptive, but descriptive. Meaning you cannot tell us what, uh, don't tell us exactly what to do. Tell us what outcome is unacceptable, right? And that unacceptable outcome has to be fiercely guarded on an international, at least on the West side, at least on the uh, developed uh, nation side, so that we don't run into trouble, which doesn't have to be sort of, uh, you know, Hollywood uh, uh, Matrix style, but even the fact that uh, mach machines uh, uh, will take uh, into consideration our own biases, uh, and just because they don't care, will incorporate those biases, and nobody will even understand why it even happened in the first place. Can this be uh, um, something that is mitigated I think the answer is yes. Um, you know, I don't know what will happen in 50 years, but I think in the foreseeable future, we will still have control of these machines. Um, I'm not from the party that sees these machines taking over utilities and starting feeding themselves with electricity and making them obsolete. Uh, um, but remember, I'm, uh, uh, I'm an old timer. So, you know, who knows what our children will invent. I'm an even more old-timer, but I think if the machines will come to get me, I'll, I'll tell them that I'm your friend, so I hope it will help. Brigadier <laughs> <laughs> uh, General Nadav Tzafri, it was really fascinating. I thank you very much for joining us here in Al Monitoring on Israel. We'll take now a short break and come right after this with some final thoughts. Toda Nadav. Thank you very much. Toda Ben. Thank you. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and Normal Sup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. 
Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Almanager's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Caspit. You can subscribe on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. Thank you for uh, staying with us. And uh, I guess uh, you enjoyed uh, this uh, inspiring and uh, maybe even a little uh, philosophical conversation with uh, Brigadier General Nadav Safrir, former commander of the uh, 8200 uh, unit, the Israeli NSA, very prestigious. And uh, there, were, there were many headlines and many, many interesting uh, topics that we discussed. I think I get, or I get out from this uh, conversation with uh, maybe one of his answers when we discussed in the beginning the possibility to detect uh, undetectable terror uh, acts by, by, uh, by lone attacker uh, without any affiliation to a terror group. hierarchy, orders, infrastructure, etc. And uh, Nadav uh, admitted that uh, this kind of youngster that is uh, going to sleep uh, while he still doesn't know what is going on tomorrow morning and then wakes up, takes a gun or a knife and uh, going out to kill civilians, uh, he makes uh, an unprecedented challenge To the, to the security uh, uh, branch and, and, and to the intelligence and all the agencies in Israel, uh, which are very, very, very experienced. So he said that, uh, however, as the world become, uh, like he, he calls it, hyper-connected, and our digital uh, footprints, uh, all of us, and I quote him, are constantly rising, almost exponentially, The answer to these uh, kind of attacks is probably based on very sophisticated and relevant and very big data. And he emphasized again and again that we hear, we, we already used to hear the, the term big data, but uh, we mean here very big data, access to very big data, sophisticated and relevant uh, uh, data. On the top of that, state-of-the-art machine learning and artificial intelligence. This is, or these are the clues to the modern days war on terror, and, and not only. And, and the equation is simple. Uh, like I said, uh, the bigger the data, the more clean and sophisticated it is, and the more uh, we can deploy all of these uh, components uh, to the edge, We will be able to detect, mitigate, not only stop terror, but ironically, make our neighbor's life better. Let's hope it happens. And uh, again, I hope you enjoyed it uh, as much as I did. And we will uh, meet here after Passover. It's a two weeks vacation right now for Jews. And uh, thank you for listening. See you. This is Ben Kaspid from Tel Aviv. Take care. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate. 
corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.